Please be seated and make your way there to Acts chapter 2 as we continue our study and search through this great book. You know, the history of any people hinges on crucial turning points. If you have any interest in truly understanding a people, you must gain some sense of the crucial moments in that people's history. Our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., illustrates this. There are three monuments, not 150. There's three monuments that are in that stretch of park leading away from the capital. The first is the Washington Monument. It reminds us of a very crucial period in our nation's history and of a crucial individual. It reminds us of the Declaration of Independence from and the successful military revolt against the British Empire and of Washington's decision to be a president and not a king. Very crucial part of our history. The next memorial on that mall is the World War II memorial, reminding us of the great global conflict, the greatest global conflict to this point in time, a conflict in which the U.S. emerged as a world power and a protector of democracy and all that went with that. Next comes at the head, and finally, of this great mall standing the majestic Lincoln Memorial reminding us of the war between the states in which the union of our nation was preserved and paving the way for the U.S. to influence the history of the free world to our time and to labor, in fact, for the freedom of all peoples. You cannot adequately appreciate this nation without perceiving the colossal importance of these crucial moments in our nation's history. You must simply gain some sense of it. And in like manner, you cannot truly appreciate Christianity without perceiving the key turning points on which God's saving purposes for His people are hinged. There are various moments in history that we must understand. Now, undoubtedly, all that, is, that God is doing through the ages is important. And God is concerned with every piece of salvation history. But there are those moments that are very crucial and significant. And one of those key events is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts 2. It is on this day that the church was born, and it is to this day that our lives and futures as God's people are moored. We simply must understand the coming, the outpouring of the Spirit of God at Pentecost. We'll note, first of all, in this text, and really by way of summary, the apostles wait in Jerusalem for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Remember that during his post-resurrection ministry, Jesus instructed the disciples in Luke 24, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. More pointedly, here in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In verse 8 of this first chapter, we find the task that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. 
We might ask at this point, why Jerusalem? Well, because it's near, because it provides a place for them. Certainly this is true, but there are other places that would have been nearer and other places that would have been more secure for these followers of Christ. But they go to Jerusalem for, I think, a very specific reason. Jerusalem is ground zero of God's redeeming activity on planet Earth. We simply must understand this as we consider God's saving purposes. We think back of the place where Abraham offers Isaac. We think back to Jerusalem as the place where the city of David is established. And the city of David under the reign of David becoming a type of what will come and the Messiah who will follow David's greater son. We think of the temple that is uh, situated there and the glory cloud that resides in the Holy of Holies and eventually lifts from that place showing God's disfavor on the nation. We think of the location of Messiah's future reign. It will be in Jerusalem. And in the end of that great heavenly city that will descend from above, and come down to this place on the planet, the heavenly Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city of colossal salvation historical moments in the history of God's people. And so, verse 12 of chapter 1, they return to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. They come back to this place, and gathering here, probably in the same upper room where they had gathered, uh, in, as we move to chapter 2, these 120 are together. In verse 14 of the first chapter, we find them praying. They select Matthias to replace Judas in verses 15 and following. And let's not forget these 12 witnesses. These 12 official apostles of Jesus Christ forming the foundation of the message that will go out to all the world to proclaim Christ crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again. These 12 witnesses are there. Yet even these 12 who have been with Jesus from the very start of his ministry, these men are nothing on their own. And so Jesus says, you must go back to Jerusalem. Something very big is going to happen. And you will be empowered by the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, one more piece here as we set up chapter 2 I think is very important. We need to understand the Old Testament background and the Jewish expectations that are very prevalent at this time. For 400 years, there has been no writing prophet. And the Jews of Jesus' day, not those who are following Jesus only, but all of the Jews of Jesus' day had really come to the conclusion that God had removed his spirit of prophecy from the nation. The task now was to know Torah, the law, what God had given to them, the written text of Scripture, to know what the prophets had said about it, and for the teachers of the law to interpret the law for the people. They were a word-based people, and indeed they should be. But along with this recognition that the spirit of prophecy had been removed was the intense expectation that the spirit would come again. That there would once again be a moving of the spirit of God and he would minister to and revive the spirits of his people on a wide scale. You might remember the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 37 in the valley of dry bones Ezekiel comes to see this valley of dead bones there in front of him. But it's with the coming of the Spirit of God that those bones stand up 
And sinews began to connect and muscles and flesh is on the bones and the bones revive because the Spirit of God breathes life into them. The Jews of Jesus' day and of the disciples' day, they believed that day was coming. There's a prophecy such as in Joel chapter 2 that says, even your servants, men and even maidservants are going to speak as the Spirit of God moves them. The Spirit of God is going to come and uniquely work within them. So no spirit of prophecy, no writing prophet for 400 years, but somewhere, someday, the Spirit was going to come. Go back, says Jesus, and wait for the Spirit in Jerusalem. In verses 1 through 4, we read the Holy Spirit is poured out on the apostles at the day of Pentecost, a crucial moment in the history of salvation. Let me just mention here in verse 1, by way of explanation, the day of Pentecost arrives, and they're all gathered here in this place, but Pentecost comes a week of weeks after the day following Passover. That's 50 days after Passover, and hence Pent, Pentecost. Passover is celebrated by lunar calculations, sometimes in in mid-April, and so Pentecost comes in early June. And it's one of three major pilgrim festivals and the one that was best attended because the travel was so good at this time of year. So Jerusalem is packed with pilgrims, packed with people. The small band then of 120 disciples are gathered on this festival that is hard after Passover, in fact is organically related to Passover. And gathering here on Pentecost, they're all in one place, probably that upper room mentioned uh, previously in chapter 1. And verse 2 says that while they're there, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. A bit unnerving. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This got all of their attention. I think the prayer meeting had ended by now. And they are saying something unique is happening. This is the promise of the Spirit that Jesus has given to us. Now, I think just as we describe the scene a bit, there are, I don't think there were any flapping curtains. And I don't think anyone's pate was seared by this fire. I don't think this is real wind or real fire. I think Luke is striving to find words. You notice there that he says it's a violent sound like a mighty rushing wind. The sound that you might expect from a howling wind is the sound that they hear. And divided tongues as of fire. There's some sort of flickering or some sort of movement and light that breaks off and divides over each of their heads. This is a weird scene. And he's really not sure how to describe it. What is clear is that sound and wind and fire were often accompanying manifestations of God's presence in the Old Testament. You remember Mount Sinai when God meets with the people who have recently left Egypt. What happens on top of that mountain as God descends on it? There is smoke and there is fire and there's this piercing, unnerving sound of a trumpet that doesn't stop. There's this, this, this loud sound to say that something unusual is happening on the top of Mount Sinai. 
On Mount Sinai, God gave His law, but here He has given His Spirit, verse 4. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We notice here the, the word filled. I, I think this is exactly what Jesus is talking about in 1.5. You will be baptized with the Spirit, with the Holy Spirit. That's the fulfillment of it here. They are filled with the Spirit. Acts 11, verses 15 through 16, Peter refers to this event as the baptism of the Spirit. And that is what they experienced. So you can call it the baptism of the Spirit. You can call it here the filling of the Spirit. I think the words are used synonymously in this place. And all of this, of course, is analogy, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't really give us precisely what's happening. You can't touch the Spirit. So when they're baptized by the Spirit, they're not soaking wet. And when they're filled by the Spirit, they're not bloated with air or something like that. It's just a work of the Spirit that cannot be touched and cannot ultimately be understood. Just the knowledge that God is here. The Spirit has come. Now sometimes, in some contexts, filling of the Spirit is distinctive from baptism of the Spirit. But here we're to see them as identical. I think what's very vital, though, also to note in verse 4 is that they were all filled. Now you go back to the Old Testament context. Remember, the Israelites are saying there's been no writing prophet. The prophets spoke by the Spirit of God, but the Spirit of God tended to orient His ministry toward just select individuals. And it was, there was a corporate nature to it, applied to Israel, to Israel's leaders, and at special occasions in the history of God's chosen nation. This is when the Spirit came, but here... The Spirit is coming on all of them. And I would take this to be not just the apostles, but all that are gathered there, the men and women that are there. The Spirit of God has come on all of them. This is unique. We have here the start of a more individualistic ministry of the Spirit of God to His people. More on that later. But what we are witnessing is the outpouring of the Spirit in honor of the Old Testament promises in sync with them and in fulfillment of Jesus' promise when he said in John 16, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. And I would imagine that in the brain synapses of the disciples when they heard that phrase, they're going, how on earth is that possible? That it's better for you to go away? Are you kidding me? In that split second, as the speech was, met their ears, how could it be better that Jesus went away? He goes on to say, this is why. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. So the disciples are to understand that with Jesus right there with us, things aren't as good as they will be when the Spirit comes to be with us. Now, in one sense, obviously, that's not the case. But in the larger sense of the term, it is. It will be better that the Spirit comes. Jesus said, John, will baptize, John baptized with water, but I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and it will be better than if I was right here with you. Because through the Spirit, we come to understand the presence of Jesus is mediated to all of us in power. The demonstration of this is the speaking in tongues. This is further indication, not just the sound, but now a transition to communication. By speaking in tongues, the evidence of the Spirit is made clear. 
The apostles, I believe this, I'm not going to go into a long detail here, and I, I trust someday we'll have a chance to go back to this, but I'm just going to give you the conclusion here. The apostles are speaking with high efficiency in languages they never studied. I believe that is clearly the case as you take the whole context in view. These are languages they had never studied. They are languages that they are speaking with clarity so that they will be understood. As the Spirit ministered to Jesus at the start of his mission when he was baptized by John, similarly we find ourselves here at the start of the mission of these witnesses, and they're baptized with the Holy Spirit. Fittingly, they are empowered to do what? to witness in the language of the nations to whom they have been sent by Jesus, chapter 1 and verse 8. Now that doesn't always happen among God's people. As I would say to anybody, if it ever does, the Spirit of God comes upon you and you can speak in a known language to someone and proclaim the gospel, please by all means do it. Speak it and proclaim the truth to that person. But this is not how God necessarily works with all people at all times. But He can. And here He gives this capacity to speak these languages, and providentially, there are representatives from nations around the Roman Empire right there with the disciples gathered. Now one thing is that some are pilgrims who've come to Pentecost, but I think probably as we study carefully through who these individuals are, probably most of these are people who have come to live in Jerusalem. But because of the festival of Pentecost, there's all kinds of them everywhere. And they hear what appears, they hear the sound of this mighty, sound like a mighty rushing wind, and they gather. We learn of them in verse 5 as we look then at verses 5 through 13 at the response to the Spirit's outpouring. We've witnessed the phenomenon here in the first four verses, and then we will look at the response to the Spirit's outpouring. Verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. This is a figure speech from all around the known world is the idea. Probably, again, Jews who have migrated back to Jerusalem largely and would be speaking in a mother tongue, but also the ability to speak in the lingua franca, the either Aramaic or Greek, the, the, the trade language, a language that virtually everybody learned and tried to understand. Something like English is used today throughout the world. But they speak a mother tongue, and, verse 6, at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? By the way, there's some who think this to be a miracle of hearing. I don't think that's the case at all. They're speaking known languages, and these people are from these parts of the empire, speaking that native tongue, or coming back and hearing this, or living here, hearing this same tongue spoken to them, the same language. So the Spirit-filled disciples spill out of the room, out of the house, and lookers-on are attracted to the scene by this noise, and they're saying, how is this possible? If I could put it, maybe paraphrase it, they're saying, how on earth are these country bumpkins from Galilee? I mean, these guys don't even know how to speak their own language well. 
They, 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 they can't pronounce gutturals. They don't handle their syllables right. I mean, they're like Northeasterners who go and pock the caw behind the house. I mean, they, 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 can't, they can't even speak their own language. And here they're speaking our language. What is going on here? Verse 9, we are Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from as far away as Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. By the way, this map that we're showing you here did not actually come from the first century. It just looks like it, but it gives you kind of a sense of the spread of these individuals who had come to this place and are all hearing the mighty acts of God. Now, there's two responses that are summarized. Verse 12, first of all, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? It got their attention. The other response, verse 13 but others mocking said they are filled with new wine. Writes one commentator, they committed the fatal error of attributing the supernatural to natural causes. They were indeed modern men. But these responses lead to the first sermon by the witnesses of Jesus. And it teeters, let me tell you, on the edge of evil to divide this sermon up. But I'm going to do that for sake of time and distance so that we can give appropriate attention to it. But these responses are now addressed by Peter. And we're going to look at just the first point of his message to them. This isn't a sermon necessarily to study for its uh, homiletical uh, capacity. This is a man just standing up and speaking and saying, here's the deal. It's filled with Scripture. It's filled with an understanding of what God's doing. But he will, first of all, will look just at this point, defend and exegete the Spirit's outpouring. That is, he's going to explain what has happened here and defend what has happened here. Beginning at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, not a throwaway phrase. These are the twelve, the eleven others. These are the twelve formal, official witnesses. He lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Before we let him speak any farther, let's ask, who on earth is this guy? This is Peter who two months earlier, less than two months earlier, didn't want anybody to talk to him about Jesus. Remember, this is the guy who said, I do not know him. And now he stands up in the, with, with this great crowd. And his master, Jesus, has just been put to death some 50 days earlier. And he says, I want all of you to hear what I have to say. Listen to me. Listen and hear. The only thing to which we can attribute this change of heart is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has come, and the ministry certainly of Jesus to Peter as he restored him. Now Peter is filled with courage. And he speaks out, probably now in the Greek or Aramaic tongue, which the others would have all spoken and understood together, and he proclaims 
what is happening and defends it. For these men, verse 15, are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. The charge of drunkenness was utterly ludicrous. I mean, it doesn't even make any sense in the context of that day. These are Jews. They've gathered for the feast day of Pentecost. If they're going to get drunk, they're not going to do it here. And when you're going to a festival like Pentecost, you don't eat until 10 or noon in the, in, in the morning, somewhere in that range. It's only 9 a.m. Gentlemen, no one is drunk here, he says. There's another explanation, and nobody argues the point with him. Verse 16, here's the explanation, and we have to understand this. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he goes on to quote the prophet. Peter informs his audience that what they are observing is what the prophet Joel prophesied long ago. Quoting Joel, Joel said, remember, you know this, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. In the past, God's Spirit moved mightily upon the leaders of Israel, as we've said, to prophesy His truth to His people. But the prophets foretold of this era, this new day, these last days, this final installment of God's saving purposes on earth, these days when the Spirit's revelatory power would fall upon all Israelites so that even servants would prophesy. Now, I think it is without question that the disciples believed they were in these last days. We have numerous references in the New Testament. Let me just quote one, Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. What is the point? God has given His Son the ultimate revelation and word, and it is in these last days that the Son has been given, Hebrews 1-2. So Peter is saying the outpouring of the Spirit that inaugurates the last days has come. They have begun. What you are witnessing is what Joel prophesied would happen. This is not to say everything in Joel's prophecy has been fulfilled, however. Verse 19, And I will show wonders in the heavens above, Peter continues to quote, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. The great and magnificent day. So which way is it? Is the day here or is it not? These references in the New Testament, such as Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2, indicate that the apostles of Christ, the followers of Jesus, believed those days had come. But clearly, some of these events have not come. Now, there's those who would say that they have. Some would say Joel 2 has been completely fulfilled. All of the things that you see here, the wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth, the blood and fire and smoke, sun to darkness, moon to blood, all of this took place on the day Jesus was crucified. And that is the argument. The thing is completely fulfilled. But I think what we find as we look at the New Testament uh, 
reflections of the Old Testament prophecies, there is a sense in which something is happening that the Old Testament prophets never saw. Do you remember how, how many comings of Jesus did the Old Testament prophets foresee and foretell? They didn't really think of it in those terms. The Messiah is just going to come. As we make our way to the New Testament, we realize that there's two comings of Messiah. His coming, everything that they said about His first and His second coming were just seen as the coming of Messiah. But now we see there's two comings of Messiah. I think the same thing is happening here. When the Old Testament prophets saw this, these last days, this day of the Lord in the end, these last days, what they saw was just issues of the Messiah's return and judgment upon the enemies of God. But now we're coming to say, see here, Peter says this is what Joel was talking about. What you are witnessing here is what Joel prophesied. We have all kinds of people prophesying here and proclaiming the mighty acts of God. And uniquely, aren't they? Under the power of the Spirit, they're talking to you in your languages, and you know these Galileans have never studied these languages and would have no idea how to speak them, even on a crash course. The judgment will come, but the day has dawned. We have entered these last days, and the Spirit of God has been poured out, not yet even on all of Israel, as will someday be the case on every one who believes on all kinds of people, but certainly there is the beginning of this here as all of these disciples are baptized in the Spirit and speak in tongues. Fire and blood and vapor of smoke and sun to darkness and moon to blood are common images of the day of the Lord prophesied in the Old Testament. And I don't believe when those Old Testament believers heard these prophecies that they thought of just taking place just on one day. Of course, they didn't understand or would not receive the idea of the suffering Messiah. But I think there's a long-awaited promise of the age of the Spirit which has come, although unbeknownst to the, those prophets, these days will be elongated. I think that we will find a fulfillment of all of Joel 2 yet in the future. But the fulfillment has begun the Spirit's coming has broken upon the scene and it will stretch out over time. The key is that a string of events is inaugurated here with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is what Joel was talking about. It's come. Not in all its fullness, but it's come. And where Peter is really leading here now is to the 21st verse in that quotation from Joel. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Joel's context, he's calling people to call on the name of the Lord to be delivered. Be delivered in, in one respect from the locust plague that was upon the land at that time. But here now, Peter uses that phrase and says, this is what Joel was talking about. This call on the name of the Lord is something that we are to do now, to call on the name of the Lord. In Joel, who was the Lord? It was Yahweh. There's no question about that. It was the Lord, God. In Peter's sermon, who is it? It's Jesus of Nazareth. There's many who say that this 
view that Jesus is God, fully God, is something that developed much later after Jesus' death and resurrection, although those who say this often deny his resurrection. But, but this happened a long time later. We see here what we would have to call a very high Christology, don't we? The Yahweh of Joel 2 is the Jesus that you just put to death and that God rose from the dead. Jesus is God, fully God. And you must call on the name of the Lord. That will become the central point of this message to follow. And I hate to cut it in half here, but we need to do that for sake of time. But Peter will continue to preach that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. No other name. Yahweh, Jesus Christ, same thing. Call on His name for salvation. This is the message. The witness has begun. This apostle of Christ is proclaiming now salvation in the name of Jesus. And this place, oh, let's stop at it for a moment and realize this is a major turning point in the history of God's saving purposes. This is bigger than the Declaration of Independence. This is bigger than the cessation of hostilities with Britain. This is bigger than World War II or the Civil War or the turning at Gettysburg or the freedom for slaves. This is bigger than all that wrapped up together as we look at our nation's history. This is the history of the people of God and this is a major turning point in that history. The outpouring of the Spirit on individual believers who are thus empowered to exhort unbelievers to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. We cannot go past verse 21 without asking the question very pointedly, have you called on the name of the Lord for salvation? Do you know what that means, that the Lord Jesus is risen Christ and reigning King and coming again, and the one who has provided in His death forgiveness of sins? Do you understand this? In the context of Joel, it dealt with the coming doom of God's judgment. And in the context of the New Testament, that context hasn't changed. There is coming a day when God will judge sin, but uniquely in this era of the Spirit, the Spirit of God comes and moves in hearts that are cold to the things of God and makes them alive by saying you are a sinner. You have violated the law of God. You have turned from His purposes. But call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. This one who is coming as judge is one who is now extending to you His mercy. Call on His name. Embrace Him as the Savior from your sin and the wrath of God that is your due. Call on the name of the Lord. Have you called on Him? I don't mean have you prayed a prayer just felt by praying that prayer somehow close to God. I mean, have you come to discern who Jesus Christ is and how God has provided salvation in His name and called upon Him in faith? And when you think of that, does it thrill you? Does any part of the core of your being respond and say, yes, I've called on the name of the Lord. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. I want to run to heaven and be with Him. Because I love him strangely, this one whom I've never seen. Well, why do you love this one you've never seen? 
because through the Spirit of God, His presence is mediated to you. You know Jesus because you walk with Him every day filled by the Spirit of God. Is that you? Do you know that filling of the Spirit of God and you know the sense of the presence of Jesus Christ in your life, not as a figure you respect like George Washington and Abe Lincoln, but as someone that you personally know to the core of your being? You've been saved. You live with Jesus through His Spirit. Have you called on the name of the Lord in that sense? For those of us who have, we must recognize this is crucial. This is a turning point, this outpouring of the Spirit of God. We have entered into these last days, and the Spirit now baptizes the new believer and mediates the presence of Jesus to us. The Holy Spirit is the power by which we witness for Jesus. The Spirit works through us to save souls. Practical application right in front of us, isn't it? Next Sunday, we want to bring to our assembly, as we do any week, but uniquely on our friend's Sunday this coming Lord's Day, to invite someone in the power of the Spirit to come where they will be encouraged to call on the name of the Lord for salvation. We know this is taking place. And may God give us courage and give us ability and open our mouths to risk to take that opportunity and to bring someone here to hear the gospel of Christ. And there are so many other ways in the passing of life as we meet people and develop relationships, as we contact people in need, as we hand out literature, and as we are part of this work. It is through the Spirit of God that we do this. It is utterly ridiculous to attempt to proclaim the gospel apart from dependence on the Holy Spirit. I confess to you without any shame that I do not have one molecule of the salesman in me. That is just not how I'm wired to go and try to sell things to people. I'll tell you, it would be devastating to me if what we were supposed to do was in our own power go out and sell Jesus. Go out with this commodity and try to convince people that this is what they need. That would be an utterly fruitless endeavor, and for some of us, particularly frustrating. I thank God for the courage that His Spirit gives that I don't go out into this world to sell something and to convince people with my salesmanship. I go out into this world filled with the Spirit of God who will empower the witness of His Word. In that, there's hope. In that, there's courage. In that, I can be motivated to know that this can actually happen. Because by the Spirit of God, God will take His Word and He will awaken dead souls. This is the thing God's up to. He's doing this in this age through His Spirit. I think back on Peter, this fearful man. I mean, do you identify with Peter? I certainly do at times. Times when you are called upon to stand for Christ and you say, whew, I don't feel comfortable with this right now. I want to pretend I don't know Jesus. I want to just fit in with the crowd. But here's this same man 50 days, some 50 days, somewhere in that range later, not even two months later, and here he is standing up with courage and saying, you've got to hear me. 
That's not because Peter figured out a great sales pitch. And if everybody will just learn this sales pitch, we're going to be able to connect. He hadn't learned a sales pitch. He'd been baptized in the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was now with him. And he says, listen to me, you've got to hear this. This same Holy Spirit is present with you, believer. He is present with you. If you truly know Christ as your Savior, this Holy Spirit isn't something different. It's the same Spirit of God. Again, I don't think that the Spirit of God typically in this day permits you to speak a language that you've never studied and to speak the gospel to someone who understands that language. Again, I say, if that happens to you, go with it. That would be the fastest anybody would ever raise missionary support, I guarantee. (laughs) But he's not a different Holy Spirit. Real powerful spirit who gives these tongues, these gifts of tongues to these people. But today, kind of a softer spirit who sort of hangs in the edges there, but doesn't really help us a whole lot. This is not the truth, people. We are in these last days just like these people were. This is the same Holy Spirit He works within the hearts of those who who respond to his influence and to his power. Now, some are going to mock as we proclaim Christ crucified and risen. Of course they will. But there are those who will respond to God's grace. And I can't guarantee you any percentages or if you do it exactly this way that there's going to be response. But what I can say is that the Spirit of God is working today and is bringing people to saving faith in Jesus. He's doing this work. Jesus is doing this work through the Spirit, through His people. This is real. It's not just some story. It's going on today. So let me ask a a tough question. To get us to think, is there a follower of Jesus Christ in this church? Or is there a follower of Jesus Christ in another gospel-preaching church today who has responded to your witness about Jesus? Now, I realize, and I say that, we can't humanly generate that. And I know there's people who are very faithful to proclaim the gospel of Christ, and it seems no one ever responds. And I'm not talking about someone just responding to your singular witness, but have you participated in some way in someone's life to proclaim the gospel such that the Spirit of God used that message and brought that person to saving faith in Jesus. When I ask that question, we must understand it's not humanly generated. It's not simply we should just feel ashamed if that's not us. But I would also say I suspect that the Spirit of God is more than willing to change that history. I think the question is, are we? Are we willing to walk in the Spirit of God who will empower us to courage and empower us to witness in such a way that is effective so that we participate in the lives of others and point people to Christ the Savior? This is the work of the Spirit. And it's a work He's doing. And He's open to participants. We have entered into this era, this outpouring of the Spirit, 
bringing in a spiritual harvest as Jesus works through his witnesses. God is doing this. Are we? Are we with him? Are we participating in this work? And are we leaning on the fact that ultimately in the end, it's not my witness or my skill. Ultimately in the end, as important as skill and witness and lifestyle are, in the end, this is a work that Jesus is doing through his spirit. Are we in it with him? Are we proclaiming the truth of Christ crucified? Peter stands up and witnesses. This isn't drunkenness, but it is influence. It is the influence of the Spirit of God, and He will transform your life if you will call on the name of the Lord for salvation. He's transformed mine, says Peter and should say, every one of us, as we speak to a lost world. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we need your rebuke. But Lord, not a rebuke that just leads to shame and ends at some stagnant backwaters of wishing we were better. I pray, God, that you would allow any rebuke that we each face to translate into encouragement and to know that this isn't about us becoming better people. It's about the Spirit of God and His power to work through us. May we truly believe it and in faith respond and proclaim widely the truth of Christ crucified and risen. Help us to this end, I pray, Father. Encourage us, encourage our hearts. We need your encouragement. And I plead with you that on the Lord's day to come, should you grant us life together and ministry together, I pray, Father, that we would see people responding to the gospel of Jesus. We don't want to just whip ourselves up into some sort of external belief in the possibility. But we want to believe in the fact that the Spirit of God is truly working and saving souls. And I pray, God, beyond that, in the witness of our daily lives and the strategies that we put together to nurture relationships and contacts, Father, permit our mouths to speak out the truth of the gospel of Jesus. I pray with all my heart and soul that we might know the joy of participating in that witness and seeing lives come to Christ as Savior. Move in our church, I pray, Father. Move uniquely to bring people to salvation. To call on the name of the Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.